In the Mudroom Today with Shell Wilson. The point of choosing to agree with God was to say, you know what? I always thought that I had it. I always thought that I was in control. I always thought that I had a fix or an answer or a solution. And it was all a fragile illusion. So how about I don't do that anymore? How about I acknowledge my right place, my agreement with you that I was created in your image and I was created to be your instrument in the world. Welcome to the mudroom. It might be a mess, but that's what it's there for. Whatever junk you're carrying with you, you can leave it here. However much of a mess you are today, the mudroom is here for you. A place to drop all the other cells we are constantly putting on and taking off. A place to catch your breath as your soul catches up with you. We don't have to be anything in the mudroom except our messy, marvelous mud cake selves. So have a seat, take a deep breath, and enter in with us. This is episode one, our inaugural podcast. My favorite four-letter words, the personal evolution of writer Shel Wilson. I'll never forget the first time I read Shel Wilson's words. Her prose weaved rhythm, depth, and passion with the precision of a poet. After peeling myself off the floor several times, I was smitten. I had to know more and went straight to her bio. It read, Jesus was never part of the club, never invited to speak at any of the temples, was not welcome in polite company. He spoke truth. He was radical. Look up its origins. If you've ever been excluded or invited out, you're in divine company. So it's extremely fitting that Shell meets us here in the mudroom today for this, our inaugural podcast episode. I'm your host, Nicole Wu. I'm a writer and editor at the Mudroom blog, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tammy Perlmutter, founder and curator of the Mudroom. In the days and weeks to come, we'll feature a different Mudroom writer, one for each month, and dig deeper into their personal stories. So join us now for a conversation with wordsmith, marketing communicator, dancer, runner, mother, daughter, wife, friend, and so much more, Shell Wilson as we delve into her journey of writing and faith, and a recent discovery that redefined her writing legacy. Lead in for my favorite four-letter words, her personal evolution. We're glad you're here. Shell, welcome to the mudroom. We know you will make yourself right at home, and that is one of the reasons why we love you. So we always ask this first question, and that is, what layers do you, Shell, need to shed today wow. here in the mudroom? I am actually ready for this question because I had a conversation with one of my two best friends, and she asked me a version of this, uh, interestingly enough, and I said, I need to breathe. I am lately physically tense, to the point of being in pain, like my knees are bothering me, my joints are achy. And I know that 
I have bound myself up in too much work stress and work-life balance where there is none when you're working from home and adult children and aging parents and in-laws and a marriage of almost 30 years, a brand new puppy. And I can feel it. I'm literally carrying it like a garment and it needs to come off. It's not good for me. So I committed to my best friend that I was going to take an action tomorrow to begin the process of actually shedding all of the weight that I am carrying. So would you be willing to open up and share what that process might look like? I know you're right at the beginning. No, actually, there's a woman in our town who is, I believe, the youngest franchiser in America. She has a stretch studio called Kika Stretch. So I committed to calling and making an appointment. A reminder to do all the things for myself that I grieve the people I love about doing. Remember that your life and your health are sacred gifts and to honor them. And I have not done that. So tomorrow I'm calling Kika to make an appointment. I kind of wish then that once you learn that knowledge, you could maybe pass it our way. (laughs) I can't touch my toes. I don't know about Tammy, but. (laughs) I can't touch my knees. I think it's interesting, though, that how you're approaching this is from the physical, the step that you're taking is is a physical step, but it also intertwines with emotional, spiritual, all of those things. Well, for me, they are actually all bound up together. I have been a trained dancer since I started studying dance at three or four. I, I guess it's been about five or six years ago that I formally stopped dancing regularly with the liturgical ensemble. And we were all trained dancers. So in some religious traditions, you'll see kind of praise dancers, which are really more about movement and kind of the arms. We've all studied Horton and modern and ballet or tap. And the artistic director of our ensemble has an international reputation for sacred dance. He's written books about it and taught across the world. So as a dancer, every morning I get up and I do a body check. Just I don't think about it as natural. I get up and I can tell where tension is in my body. I can tell the adjustments that I'm going to make. I don't know if you've ever injured yourself and you're limping. You'll find something else in your body is out of alignment because you've been compensating for the injury. Every morning I get up and I do that without thinking and I know where I am. It's just, okay, this knee feels a little soft. I'll have to move differently or I'm stooping or not standing straight. So I'm aware of it. And one of my personal challenges, and for me, my body always mirrors my spiritual life. I'm not on top of things. So to have gotten to this place physically, I am not honoring the messages that are coming to me. And that's a problem. And it has become such a serious problem that is physical manifestation. But that's a beautiful self-awareness that you have that every morning you do that check. I, I would guess if you talk to almost any dancer and probably a lot of other people who rely upon their bodies, it's a natural thing. Like I know people, you never think about it, but I do it. And sometimes I become aware that I'm doing it. You know, I slide my feet down in the morning. And I've written about it. I talk about grounding myself, like fully feeling the floor. I 
I most love modern dance, which means I never wear shoes and I need to be engaged with the floor and the space and you feel things differently. So I can tell it just, mm. you know, and as I've gotten older as a dancer, the artistic director would modify choreography when one of my knees wasn't acting right or if one of my ankles was a little weaker. And that's part of kind of the gift of a life of movement. You know what you're doing. You just, and most people don't think about it. You, you don't think about it. That's fascinating. Let's begin at the beginning, or at least closer to it. Shell, how did you get here? Specifically, how did you become the wordsmith you are today? And who or what has impacted your wordsmithing the most? Well, as is often the case with me, I'm going to answer your question, but not right away. Because I was thinking today... I remember you calling me and inviting me to join the mudroom. And I think one of the first things I asked you was, I said, you know, I swear, right? <laughs> and you laughed and you said, how much? You didn't freak out, which I really appreciated. You said, how much? And I said, not a lot. I said, and I probably threatened to swear more than I do, but I just need to put it out there. And you said, okay, behave yourself. And I just, it was such an incredible embrace of grace. Because how did I become the wordsmith I am today? I'm unpacking that in so many ways. But the short answer is uh, about 10 years ago, I had a sudden end to the career that I was in. And being a disciplined person after taking my husband to the train in the morning and the children to school in the morning and walking the dog, I needed something to do. So I started writing because I would sit in the morning and sit at the computer and I had a job from nine o'clock when the day for me started until 2.30 when I needed to go pick up the children to start dinner. And I really discovered that I loved it. I just couldn't imagine doing any other thing. And I spoke to my mother where all answers reside. We all have children, so we know that somehow the act of mothering, however that comes to you, invests in you all of this wisdom that you could never have imagined having otherwise. And I said to my mom one day, well, I can't believe how much I love writing. My mother laughs at me and she says, you don't remember, do you? And I said, mommy, what are you talking about? And she said, when you were little, all you said was, when I grow up, I'm going to be a writer. It wasn't until I was almost 50 years old that I got to live out my childhood dream. And my day job now is to be a content and digital marketing director. So I get paid to write all day. And I was afraid when I took my first professional writing job that I wouldn't love writing anymore because I'd have to do it. But the gift and the blessing for me is my writing during the day informs my writing at night. And I have nine to five and then I have five to nine. And they marry and mix and meld in ways that clearly is a sign that God loves me. It is one of the most extraordinary gifts ever. And I tell people, I would do this for free because I did for about 10 years and now they pay me to do it with benefits and vacation time. And it is such a tremendous gift. I love that. So that they inspire one another. They inspire one another. There is this sense of iron sharpening iron. I learned something in my work as a marketing communicator to a very specific and very creative and innovative and talented audience. Traveling that high wire, if you will, makes the rest of the writing I do more thoughtful, more considerate. 
I have lots of words. I know lots of words, but my best work is done when I write 500 and edit to maybe 210. It's tight. It's, it's thoughtful. Every word means something. Even if in my personal writing, it's about the rhythm of the language more than the information, but they always work together for me. And again, it's a gift. You do have words. I, there are times where I read your pieces and I have to look up things in the dictionary. I, I'm like, I don't know that word. Word nerd. <laughs> but I love that. And there's a beautiful rhythm to your writing too. a lot of your pieces. And I appreciate that. So I'm going to tell you something that I just discovered. My father, God rest his soul, was a classic Baptist pastor, but also a Princeton Theological Seminary graduate. So I grew up a preacher's kid, grew up in church. My father would handwrite his sermons. My father had beautiful handwriting. And one of the things that people often say about my writing is it feels like spoken word. I was home visiting my mother for Christmas, and I actually came across a cache, as far as I'm concerned, of my dad's sermons. And I have a bunch of them on note cards in his handwriting. And one of the most fascinating things about them is they're written the way that he delivered them. So as you know, Nikki is somebody who edits my work. Nothing I love more than an ellipse. He uses them. There are pauses in his writing for breath. He writes in all caps and I can hear his voice changing. And it is so incredible to me that I inherited this. It's, it's an evolution from my dad to me. My dad was gone long before I started writing formally and finding this. And when I tell you, I have a stack of maybe a half inch of these that I just took with me. My mother has briefcases and boxes full of them. And it is my dream to collect them all and look back at his writings and his sermons and kind of wonder how and whether I've written about the same things and how they intersect and support one another or how vastly divergent they are. But it's my legacy to be this person who loves words because that's who my daddy was. That is a pure gold find. Oh, that was Christmas. That was my Christmas gift this year. Wow. Pure gold. And I'm just thinking about the DNA that's in you and the legacy. Yeah. And that gives me goosebumps. I bet your father didn't swear nearly as much as you do, Shell. No, no. My, no, my daddy was a good Baptist preacher. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't swear um, much. Occasionally at home. Occasionally. But no, he, he would. It's interesting that you say that, Tammy, because sometimes my mother and I have these conversations. And I say, I wonder if you'd be proud or horrified. And my mother laughs and says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There's a time and place for everything. And I've actually researched, there's all of these studies about people who swear, and there's an argument that they tend to have higher IQs and greater verbal capacity, and it's because there's a precision about language. But I also looked up what it is about people who like scary movies, which I don't at all, by the way. But I think part of the reason I fling that warning at people in my writing is for the same reason some people like scary movies, there's actually an increase in adrenaline and dopamine, kind of testing yourself to see what limits you can stand. And I actually want people to pay attention when I write something. So I may 
threatened to be really provocative. And in fact, I am, but not the way that you expected. So, you know, as you know, the piece that I've written for The Mudroom this month is a confession that my favorite words have four letters. And all of the four-letter words that I reference in the piece are not the ones you're expecting. So true. I know. I think I feel like some kind of stress hormone happening usually when I'm I'm reading your stuff. It's like the good stress, right? And I'm interested in the stress, whether it's mostly good or just partially good, because that allows me to get the reader's attention when I need to say something important. And it might be something about faith. It might be something about social justice or racial equity. It might be something about, you know, I've taken on in the past two or three years, as I really have, I've been threatening to evolve for years and it's been a slow process, but I'm kind of at the end of this piece of evolution because evolution is ongoing. But I'm really comfortable with myself and I am trying to be humble in that comfort. I'm like, you know what? I'm not responsible to you. I'm responsible to God. And I think God is guiding me to say this. And there are actually things that I've written that I don't discuss with everybody just because everybody's not ready for those conversations. So I will often say that every conversation isn't for every audience. And that's okay. That That's okay. Right. That kind of brings you back to your marketing background too, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just understanding your target audience. Well, so let's zoom in on this theme that you chose, which is evolution for this month. Mm -hmm. So when we asked our writers here at the Mudroom to select a theme, we had each writer select a theme, one each month. Evolution was it for you. I remember there wasn't much hesitation. You were like, pow, evolution, that was it. So tell me, how did you arrive at that word? Tell us a little bit more about that process. It is, for me, the culmination of a long journey. As I said, you know, I am a little Black girl of the civil rights era. I was a preacher's kid and grandkid and great-grandkid. I have church roots that go really, really, really deep. So I was a good girl, and I was obedient and compliant, and I had musical ability so that when someone asked me to play a hymn in church, I would play a hymn. When someone asked me to sing a song, I sang a song. I was never out of order, never out of line, never inappropriate. I was a real performance junkie and a perfection addict. You know, when somebody told me to do something, I'm not just going to do it. I'm going to do it like it's never been done before. And that was my own personal standard. And I didn't realize that that was a prison that somebody invited me into, but I bricked up for myself. And the process of evolving has been unlearning so much that I learned and reinforced and letting go of anything that isn't actually me. So I remember when I realized before I made a public um, articulation of it that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do anymore professionally. I wanted to write. And I kind of whispered it in the beginning. And then I practiced it. And then I got pretty good at it. 
and I wrote for free. And then I started freelancing. And I remember the moment that somebody offered me a paying full-time job as a writer. And I remembered back to so many years earlier when I got laid off. And I got laid off of a big, fat, sexy job. I was the senior director of human resources for Blue Man Group. And I was convinced it was the best job I was ever going to have. My name was in the playbill. Like, I, I was living life. My husband and I filed our taxes the following spring. And I couldn't write unemployed. And I couldn't write housewife. I just, I couldn't do that. So I wrote writer. And I remember when I got my first writing job. And we filed our taxes that year. And I actually lived into the thing that I aspired to 10 years earlier. And that was just extraordinary. And I have lived through many such evolutions since. And most of my evolution now is about my faith. You know, a lot of people talk about deconstruction. And my counter argument is I'm not deconstructing my faith because the faith tradition in which I was raised was never built for me anyway. So I had to evolve what I learned into something that fit who I was because I wasn't like the Christians that I saw in books or heard about in music and, you know, the, the people that I saw preaching the word and the roles of women or people who look like me. So I never had to deconstruct my faith. I had to construct it. And that requires an evolution. It requires choosing not to be constrained by the prison of good girl, good girl, good wife, good daughter, good this, good that. And to finally say, you know, when you read the Old Testament and you understand fear of God is not scary, it's awe and understanding your right place. And my right place was not the place that I'd been. So I had to evolve into something new. It's interesting because. When you talk about deconstruction, evolution in a way is kind of the opposite of that, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. kind of a, a growing and changing and morphing where deconstruction is sort of like brick by brick, you're yep. taking it down. So it's yep. interesting how you approach that. It's, it's an organic process. And I don't think you know it until you know it. I think when you formally talk about deconstruction, People acknowledge the, as you said, the dismantling brick by brick of whatever that structure is. But I don't think we talk about what happens after you break down the wall. You know, if the wall is structural, for example, there has to be something upon which you can rest. So there has to be a building of something or you've just blown everything up and now you have nothing at all. Right. So, Shell, in this month's piece, in which I make a public confession of my evolution, my favorite words have four letters. You write, <laughs> and I quote you, God does not and never has needed our participation. However, for my evolution to proceed, I had to be a willing co-creator with God, yielded, open, still. However, first I had to confess that I could not be God. I was never in control. I never had any of the answers as much as I might have pretended to the contrary, unquote. So I'm fascinated by the evolution and your understanding about control. What were the catalysts that got you there? I'm going to step back just a minute because 
I was very thoughtful about using the language co-creator because honestly, it really ticks a lot of Christians off because it suggests a kind of hubris that, you know, God doesn't need you to co-create. God creates on his own. My point in saying that was, and I don't remember where I first heard this, but we can choose to make ourselves available to God. God is eternal. We are not. So if God is waiting for our moment of arrival and we don't show up, millennia go on and there will be someone else. So the point of choosing to agree with God was to say, you know what? I always thought that I had it. I always thought that I was in control. I always thought that I had a fix or an answer or a solution. And it was all a fragile illusion. So how about I don't do that anymore? How about I acknowledge my right place, my agreement with you that I was created in your image and I was created to be your instrument in the world. And I I choose instrument thoughtfully because as much as I've been a dancer, I've also been a musician. And an instrument can sit until the player takes it and makes the music. And that's really what I was talking about. And most of the catalysts for me were losing, like being wrong. You know, I, <laughs> I remember, I remember my first pregnancy and because I'm just so extra, you know, if somebody wants to do one thing, I have to do 19 things. So whereas another woman might quietly, sadly, suffer a pregnancy loss. I miscarried in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner and I was hosting. I wasn't going to let dinner mess up. And I didn't tell anybody until after the last guest had left. But I remember saying to my husband, weeping as we were waiting for the doctor to tell us when to meet him at the hospital, that through sheer force of my will, I was not going to lose this pregnancy. And my husband looked at me like all sane people look at crazy people and said something supportive and knew that I was out of my mind. And I think maybe I want to believe that he knew that I was wrong and he was going to need to kind of put me back together at some later point. But when I said it, I meant it and I believed it. And it just shows for me how fragile, committed and wrong you can be. And I was all those things. And there's a series of losses, large and small, not getting what you wanted or what you thought you deserved or what you thought you were supposed to have. And by really working hard for it and feeling like you deserved it, you were supposed to have, none of that matters. And the aggregate lesson for me was stop because you've never been in control and you've never known how to get the things you think you want. And the things that you usually thought you wanted were so minimal as compared to what God had available for you. If you would just quit fighting. And, spoiler alert, my word of the year, which is so counterintuitive to my personality and all of my friends who heard it the first time when I finally articulated it out loud, laughed at me because they quoted back one of my favorite lines to me, "Mm -hmm, told you God got jokes. The word is, wait, wait, just wait and watch God. You know, I, I referenced Isaiah 
47, I think it is, 4718. I hate to quote scriptures because I was getting wrong, but it's in my piece. I'm about to do a new thing. And then the next line is, it's been happening all along. Have you been noticing? And then it talks about streams in the desert. And there are entire years of my writing where I talked about being in the desert, feeling locked away from everybody and feeling distanced and separated. And all of this now comes together really clearly. It took me forever. But again, God was going, well, if you could just shut up and waited for me, maybe this would have happened 10 years ago, but I wouldn't have been ready. So, okay. It's funny. I think that those of us who do a word for the year type exercise, we end up choosing something that we are really, really bad at. Like usually, you know, yeah. it's never like an easy word that, oh yeah, I got that. You know, it's always something we have to live into and it can be painful. Yeah. Right? I never choose my words. My words always choose me. They always choose me. And I'm always looking back at them going, really? Really? That's what, that's what we're doing. Okay. All right. But you're absolutely right. You look at all the things that you're good at and you're like, wait, that? Wait, come on. Wait, can we do this again? Yeah. It's like, oh shoot. I don't want that. <laughs> so Wait. That connotes passivity, but in reality, what you're saying is that actually it probably requires more effort than most of the antonyms, right? Particularly like, if you know me. Right. <laughs> Ask me to wait. Right. So it's just fascinating that it's anything but passive, really. It is. And for me, at least, because I suck at it so profoundly, it is an act of worship and of obedience and of grace. Because if I'm being who I usually am, I'm so not waiting. I, I'm so not waiting. And there are times when in my own mind, the, the word exercise I remind myself of is if you've ever seen a bird hatch out of an eggshell, it's from the inside out. And if you try to help the process the bird will most certainly die. So it doesn't have anything to do with you. It, it is a process that is independent of you and you simply must be patient and yielded to it. So whenever I get really hot and happy and go, 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 I remember that eggshell and how fragile it is and how much promise and beauty is inside and how only patience will allow what is inside to present in its own time there's there's life yeah. waiting beautiful very profound thank you tammy i again i thank you for the gift of an invitation to join the mudroom it has been transformative for me in so many ways it has drawn me back and i know i need a little more drawing back into the discipline of regular writing i tell you what this whole pandemic thing it's taken us all on some trips we never thought we'd go on, but it is such an extraordinary community. And even when I am quiet, I am learning and I am growing as a result of the words that the other writers are sharing and the messages that are so different than mine. And it's such a powerful community in that we look after each other, we pray for each other, we celebrate together, we cry together. We have fun together, which is just remarkable, where writers can be so competitive and so solitary and women can be so competitive and 
I find that it is none of those things, and that's remarkable. That is an anointing, I think, that you've laid for all of us. Thank you. It's a true gift. The mudroom yeah. is just a beautiful, messy, crazy space. Yeah. And we're so glad you're in it with us, Shell. We're so glad. Thank you. You guys are my people. We love you. Love you back. Thanks for joining us today. The Mudroom Podcast is a production of the Mudroom Blog. It's executive produced by Tammy Perlmutter. It's produced, written, and edited by Nicole Wu. A very special thanks to recording artist Krista Wells for our theme song, More Than I Am. Graphic design by Amanda Tingle Taylor. For more on the Mudroom, a place for stories emerging in the midst of the mess, visit mudroomblog.com. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find more of Shell Wilson's words at mudroomblog.com, including her recent piece in which I make a public confession of my evolution. You can also find more of her writing at her website, shellawilson.com. We'll see you next time with a two-part conversation with Enneagram expert and godmother, Suzanne Stabile. Stay close. We are meant to live up high. Thank the one who sent you, cause he knows how much you've meant to me. How we need each other, we are sisters and brothers. Our islands are great to visit, but I have found we are meant to live up You make me more than I am.